This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So as I thought about what to say this evening, it occurs to me that we have such a large graduating class this year in the humanities department that whatever I say, I should direct especially to them. These past years at Villanova, I've had more than one student in my office fretting about what to do after May. Some of you were in my red chair fretting last semester. So with the seniors in mind, I put together some comments around the question, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? This is, after all, the governing question of senior year. To the underclassmen and women here tonight, I invite you to begin to think this way so that you'll have to spend less time in my fretting chair come senior year. <laughs> now I have a sense that the way that we talk about career counseling at Villanova leaves out some important dimensions of the conversation. So I'm going to try and sell you tonight on the claim that if you want the best career counseling on campus, you're going to become a humanities major. <laughs> tonight I'm going to try and dispel four current myths around the way that we ask this question, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I'm going to draw on two heroes of mine that are going to offer us a different vocabulary around this question, Ignatius and Augustine. I'm going to give Aquinas the night off. <laughs> Those of you who have taken our gateways will recognize that each gateway highlights how contemporary culture diagnoses the human person and her relation to the world, and then offers a new vocabulary for to how to, for how to envision the thing differently. And I'm going to follow that same pattern this evening. So I'd like to suggest a different vocabulary for asking the question, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I'm going to dispel four illusions, I'm hoping. You'll tell me if I actually do by the end. The first assumes that life is a linear development. The second is convinced that it's all about the mind, that if we think really hard about our decisions, we'll be able to make a good one. The third focuses primarily on jobs, on what we should do for work, on how we should earn a living. And the fourth proceeds by finding our best skill set and matching that up with a job in which we'll be productive. Now instead, I'd like to offer a different vocabulary that helps reorient our thinking. So myth number one, life is a linear development. So some of you might have read or watched Steve Jobs' commencement address at Stanford in 2005. I'd like to remind you of one of the stories that he told that day. So if you recall, he shows up at Reed College and he uh, starts taking classes, but he, his parents are working class, they're spending his, their life savings for him to go to school, and he just thinks he doesn't understand what the point is. So he drops out of classes, he drops out of, of college, but he stays there, sleeps on his friend's floor, and, and audits some classes. And I'd like to just uh, listen, have you listen to a clip about one of the classes that he audited. Let me give you one example. Reed College at that time offered perhaps the best calligraphy instruction in the country. Throughout the campus, every poster, every label on every drawer was beautifully hand calligraphed. Because I had dropped out and didn't have to take the normal classes, I decided to take a calligraphy class to learn how to do this. I learned about serif and sans serif typefaces, about varying the amount of space between different letter combinations, about what makes great typography great. It was beautiful, historical, 
artistically subtle in a way that science can't capture. And I found it fascinating. None of this had even a hope of any practical application in my life. But 10 years later, when we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me. And we designed it all into the Mac. It was the first computer with beautiful typography. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no personal computer would have them. If I had never dropped out, I would have never dropped in on that calligraphy class, and personal computers might not have the wonderful typography that they do. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college, but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path, and that will make all the difference. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. This is really, really important. Myth number two, it's about thinking really hard. One of the illusions that you and I share is that if we just think long and hard about something, we'll work our way through it. We put a lot of stock in what happens up here, but we fail to attend to another really important dimension of ourselves. And I'm talking here about our imagination. What in 1882 John Henry Newman suggested about Christianity, I'd like to suggest about how to choose our major or our job. So Newman, about Christianity, Newman writes, it is not our reason that is against us, but our imagination. He thought that his contemporaries had become so captivated by developments in modern science, so taken with stories of scientific achievement, that when they turned toward the Gospels, these read like gobbledygook. His friends had grown accustomed to looking at the world through the lens of reductive empiricism. Stories about healings and transformations and burning bushes are simply unintelligible in this worldview. But notice that Newman locates the problem in his friend's imagination, not in the use of their reason. There's something really right about this. So let's transpose Newman's argument from the theological arena into the college environment. Our imaginations have been trained to think that the only options in college are to be pre-law, pre-business, or pre-med. So we struggle to imagine possibilities outside this framework. The social imaginary that Charles Taylor talks about restricts the way that we think about choosing our major or searching for a job. Taylor's social imaginary is not a set of ideas. Instead, it's what enables the practices of a society. Now, what does he mean by this? The social imaginary is a somewhat elusive set of self-understandings, background practices, and horizons of common expectations. These include the way a people imagine their surroundings in images, stories, or legends. While these are not always explicitly articulated, they give a people a sense of a shared group life. The social imaginary can't be captured in a list of doctrines since meaning is always historically situated. 
So when we talk about social imaginary, it's going to be a little fuzzy. But here's one example. Part of our social imaginary is that we're all, we are all individuals before we're members of a society. That there's something really fundamental, fundamental about the individual. This is in the woodwork or in the air that we breathe, regardless of any objections that we might raise about it. So those of you in the God class, like when sometimes I look at you in disgust and I say, you sound so modern, I'm usually referring to something in our social imaginary. I mean, you know, pretend disgust. <laughs> um, I want to suggest this evening that the horizons and expectations within which we ask the question, what am I going to do with my life, what Taylor calls our social imaginary, makes us less creative than we could be about our answers to that question. In other words, our social imaginary makes us believe that there are only a couple of occupations realistically worth pursuing. Some of us, of course, genuinely love finance or want to become attorneys or doctors. That's terrific. I married a lawyer. <laughs> it's just that not all of us do. So let's turn to Augustine's Confessions for some guidance. So here we're in Book 8. In Book 8 of the Confessions, Augustine has already come to recognize that he has a problem with sex. Like he said, it's not his only problem. He's overly ambitious. He's insanely arrogant. But this is the problem that he kind of focuses in on in this book. It's in this book that he famously, he famously says, give me chastity, but not yet. By this point in his life, he knows that he needs to turn toward the Christian God, but he can't quite make himself do it. He's holding back. So I'm going to talk about a scene in this book in two parts. In part one, Augustine has already recognized that he's torn up about what kind of life he should lead. He notes that even when we're choosing between two goods, like say for us this evening, am I going to be a writer or am I going to be a doctor? Each of these choices tug at us. All are good, but they compete among themselves until one is chosen, he's right, he writes. So how to choose? He finds himself dislodged and hanging at this point in his life. Augustine's imagination is a powerful force in his movement from disorder to ordered love. He has these mistresses, these voices, tugging on his fleshly garments. Are you sure you can do without us, they say? Are you ready to give us up completely, they ask? If you give us up forever, you'll never, your whole life long, be able to come back to us. As he turns away from them, their voices recede, and they begin to mutter behind his back. But they still pluck at him, and they try to get him to look back. Augustine writes, they did, they did slow me down, for I could not bring myself to tear free and shake them off, and leap across to that place whither I was summoned, while aggressive habit still taunted me. Do you imagine you will be able to live without these things? So in making important choices in our lives, we should pay, pay attention to the imaginative voices in our heads. Some will be tucking, plucking at us, tugging at our fleshly garments. Now in part two of this scene, Augustine encounters a vision of a lady who is chaste. Uh, so I looked far and wide for a vision of this actual scene. If I were a painter, I would have painted this scene. But it has somehow <laughs> not occurred to a painter to paint this scene, as far as I can tell. Uh, so we've got Botticelli's Primavera here. Th I think the images kind of leap off the painting here. The, they leap off the screen. As you listen to my paraphrasing of this scene, I hope that'll happen. If it doesn't, just let me know and 
we'll talk about the painting. This chaste woman he calls Lady Continence. In his imagination, he encounters a woman who, while not sexually active or seductive, is attractive. She's fruitful. She's happy. She has a calm demeanor and coaxes him with welcoming hands to come towards her. Surrounding her are many boys and girls, people of every age, widows grown old in their virginity. This vision comes as somewhat of a shock to him because he's never imagined that refraining from sex could be an attractive way of life. Up to this point, he'd only <coughs> seen refraining from illicit sexual experiences as a negative, as a bodily addiction to deny. But here he sees the alternative as actually appealing. Lady Continent smiles at Augustine and asks, can't you do what these women and men have done? He stands there, bitterly ashamed, because he could still hear the murmurs of those voices in his head. He stands there in suspense, hanging back. And so she appeals to him a second time and tells him to close his ears to those voices. And then he is finally able to say, I want to be like her. What's really crucial about this second part of the scene is that it's not until Augustine has an imaginative encounter with Lady Continence that's appealing to him that he's able to make a decision to move away from disordered love. It's not until he recognizes that Lady Continence isn't barren, but rather she's a fruitful and fully satisfied lover, lover of the Lord, that he's able to embrace a different life. Now he bursts into tears at this point and goes outside so as not to cry in front of his friend. This is one of the many moments of machismo in the confessions that drive me crazy. <laughs> so on another night, I'll, I'll give a lecture like machistic moments in the confessions. <laughs> but okay, so he runs outside crying, <coughs> crying his eyes out. And this is where he has that famous tole lege moment. He hears a voice pick up and read scripture. He lights upon chapter 13 of the book of Romans that tells him literally to stop messing around and to turn toward Christ. Now, if it were you and me in the classroom, I would have put that a little more saltily. But my mother's here. So <laughs> just imagine it ramped up a little bit. <laughs> he writes, no sooner had I reached the end of the verse than the light of certainty flooded my heart and all dark shades of doubt fled away. He is able then to leave the city and to move to the countryside to live among friends who are friends with God. For those of you who've taken the person course, he begins to live a life marked by the kind of conviviality of the drunk hallelujah guy in Babette's feast. But he can't do this until he recognizes true happiness in the face of Lady Continence during this imaginative encounter. So what does this mean for us? This means that it's really important to look around and to seek out those concrete images for ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, who do I want to become <coughs> in a really concrete way? Now I can tell you about 10 years ago, Michael and I went to hear Marilyn Robinson at the Folger Library in DC. She was talking about her then latest book, Gilead. And I was in this deep fog of early motherhood. Sorry, Dr. Quigley <laughs> um, is going to go back to that fog. But um, uh, I was in this fog. I had a baby. I had a toddler. And I just, you know, the ho that whole chapter in my life is somewhat hazy. But I remember this night acutely. 
As I listened to how articulate and composed and smart and insightful Marilyn Robinson was, I said, I want to be like her. It was a really important moment in my life, and it played an important role in my decision to leave full-time parenting, I mean, not my kids behind, just full-time parenting, <laughs> and to come to Villanova. <laughs> now, okay, all right. Um, this insight about the role of our imagination is behind the booklet in the humanities department and on our website that offer little photos and real-life stories of humanities graduates who've actually gone on. They've gone on to graduate school. They've gotten jobs in very interesting and individual ways. Do we have any graduates here this evening? If you're a graduate, could you please stand up? Sorry, Justin, I saw you. Brian, where are you? I saw you. Yep, okay. All right, starting from the right, I just... Just we've got some concrete images right here, right now in this room. <laughs> Justin, can you just tell us a little bit about what you've done post um, Villanova? Sure. I was just an engineer for about four years, uh, and I'm just working a part-time job as an undergrad here. Great. What discipline? Uh, computer science. Thank you. Vasquez, and I spent two years studying classics, and next year I'll start a PhD program in philosophy. Great, thank you. Thank you. I didn't warn you, I, I know, but <laughs> um, if you've had me in class, you know that I call on you. <laughs> so that we shouldn't come at it as a total shock. Okay, so to further emphasize what a huge role our imagination plays in our decisions about majors, I turn to Garrison Keeler, producer of the radio show A Prairie Home Companion. Now this is from a show done at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee in 1994. Keeler told a story of when he first went to the Opry 20 years earlier as a 32-year-old man. He was writing a magazine piece about that famous theater and was sitting up in the balcony. Now let's listen to what he has to say about that evening when he's giving news from Lake Wobegon. Now, I do think that Gar little Garrison Keillor goes a long way, so I'm only giving you three clips. But when he's really good, like, he's excellent. So here we go. Tonight is a great occasion for me, and I hope you forgive me if I talk about it, because uh, it was 20 years ago this spring that I came down here to the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville to write a magazine piece about the Grand Ole Opry on its last <coughs> night from this hall before it moved out to Opryland. And uh, that, that Friday night at the Opry in 1974 is very vivid to me. I remember where I was sitting, I was right up there in the balcony. I could almost see the seat from here. And it was sitting up there in the balcony, looking down here at all of them, playing on the show, it made me think that if I ever managed to finish writing this piece, I'd like to go back up to Minnesota and start a radio show just like the Grand Ole Opry. It seemed like a lot of fun. So it's a powerful feeling to come and visit the site of yet another of life's haphazard decisions. And to think about who that young man was sitting up there in the balcony. He was 32 years old. He was discontented and confused, normal for a 
writer. And he was sitting up there and looking at people on the stage, trying to think how he was ever going to get this down on paper. It was just too glorious and too exotic. The pulsation of fans, people fanning themselves in this auditorium, those church windows in the back, the colors of the sequins, and the way the performers did their hair, the way the announcer gestured to the audience for applause, the crowd milling around in the wings, those pin rails along the wings with the ropes that tied to them going on up to the fly gallery, all those performers coming out with their gorgeous mother-of-pearl guitars and the smell of hot dogs and beer and the smell of people, all of that gaiety and confusion. I was sitting up there and wondering how I was ever going to write this thing. It was my first nonfiction piece of writing, and I was really on the spot. I wasn't that smart, but I'd known that for a long time. <laughs> Ever since I almost got kicked out of the University of Minnesota, where I came to the limits of my natural, God-given ability at taking multiple-choice tests. <laughs> I had perfect pitch when it came to multiple choice. Somehow, I just, I could always hear which one was the right answer. And in the Midwest, back in the 1950s, it was almost always C was the correct answer. So I coasted along on that for a long time until I got to the university and you had to take essay tests. You had to actually write about things. And that threw me for a loop. Sort of made it on fiction for a while, but I was here at the opera back in 1974 trying to think about how I was going to write this. And I thought to myself, you know, that looks like fun down there on stage. What they're doing, singing and, and entertaining these wonderful people. Wouldn't that be a great way to spend your time? And so I went back to Minnesota in the spring of 74, and we started up a Prairie Home Companion. That was 20 years ago the result of a foolish decision made in the balcony of this auditorium way back then. Keeler makes clear that it was something about that evening, about the performers down there on that stage, that lit him from within. All he can do is describe it. Describe, he just tries to describe that scene for us. He tries to get us there, to place us there with him. His imagination was ignited. So I hope I've made clear that the role of the imagination is crucial when we make these life decisions. But how, you might ask, do I choose between helpful and harmful images? How do I judge between them? Remember that Augustine had to turn away from lustful voices in his head before turning toward Lady Continence. Which voices in our heads and those around us should we listen to? Here, Ignatius of Loyola is instructive. For Ignatius, the first step in the discernment process involves cultivating an indifference to the options. Now, this doesn't mean I don't care what job I get. Instead, it involves developing an attention to our, atta uh, an attention to our, our, about our attachment to things. If we find ourselves overly obsessing about the starting salaries of different professions, that might not be the best place to start. I have to mention here, of course, that recent studies have shown that the income differential 10 years down the line between arts and sciences graduates 
and graduates from the professional schools largely disappears. But <laughs> I have no interest in convincing you of the economic advantages of a liberal arts degree. Instead, I want to caution you against growing attached to these sorts of arguments. We need to examine critically what attracts us to certain future possibilities. When the possibility of moving to Villanova became a real one for Mike and me, <coughs> the thought of leaving the financial stability and security of Mike's law firm life terrified me. Like I wasn't the one putting in the grueling hours, I will admit. But that attachment to stability and security was something to examine and to discipline myself away from. So the first step in the discernment process, Ignatius tells us, is cultivating indifference. Ignatius then tells us that the second step is to leap imaginatively into what option A looks like. Sit with an image of yourself in option A at age 25, 35, 50. Do that exercise repeatedly and then pay attention to how you feel after those images have retreated into the background of your mind. Ask yourself, do I feel consolation or desolation? Do I feel a lasting sort of peace, contentment, happiness even, or do I feel a little gross or confused or unclear? It might be that the imaginative exercise for option A is initially attractive and exciting. It sometimes really is initially attractive, but it's crucial to pay attention to how you feel later in the day or later in the week when thinking back to option A. So it's important to do this exercise repeatedly and to pay attention to its after effects. Some options that are initially attractive are not lastingly so. A third step along the way for Ignatius involves talking to others we trust. He calls them our spiritual companions. Now it's really important to lean on the guidance of these figures in our lives. Our real companions are those will, who will help us sort out which of the options are sound and which are deceptively attractive. So let me just say two things here. The decisions about your major and about what to do after Villanova are onerous and important, of course. But looking back, you'll find that this is one of a string of important life, life decisions along the way. So those of you who are seniors only have to decide the next step, not the next five steps just the next step. That's it. When I moved back to Argentina for a year after college, I didn't know how formative it would be. All I knew is that I wasn't ready to go back to graduate school. And it's only in retrospect, looking back, that I can say that that year helped shape me into who I am today. So let me tell you a story about the end of the next chapter of my life. As I left graduate school in Boston, I would have told anyone that grad school was the highlight of my life. My roommate of six years, Deborah and I, married our current and only husbands within <laughs> three weeks of each other. I took the plunge just before Deborah. So it was her wedding reception that really marked the end of graduate school and the beginning of our married lives. Now, thank God that Deb never showed me the video of that wedding reception because my tears could have mopped up the entire banquet hall. <laughs> I kid you not. It's true that for Argentines, crying is like sweating. It's what we do on a regular <laughs> basis, and you expect it, and you deal with it. But my tears that evening were weeping for an end that I truly and completely thought was the high point of my life. 
I'm utterly embarrassed to say this, more embarrassed to have it caught on tape. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I didn't think married life could measure up. <laughs> I'm like embarrassed that Mike's over there. I know, I know, like the whole thing is embarrassing. Okay, <laughs> so um, looking back now, I can say that I lack trust in myself, in my husband, and in the God that I believe in. To listening to some of you these past few months, in particular these seniors, I hear resonances of myself at that wedding mopping up the floor with my tears. Trust that you have good lives ahead of you, worth living. Now your four years here, I hope, have been formative, but they're not going to constitute the highlight of your life. So the second myth tells us that, what we have, that we have to think really hard to make our way through life's decisions. I've tried to show you to let our imagination guide us as much as our mind. Myth number three. Things are going to get a little dicey. <laughs> uh, when thinking about what you should do with your life, focus on jobs and work. So it seems to me that the social imaginary that you and I share is embedded in a narrative of education as jobs training. Remember that social imaginary is that somewhat elusive set of self-understanding, background practices, and horizons of common expectations that aren't always explicitly articulated. College students think the decisions that will determine their future primarily are about summer internships and their major, or their double major, or their triple major, or their quadruple major, or their minors, or their concentrations. So that's what we focus on. It's my view that decisions college students make about their leisure time during their four years here are just as determinative. Not kind of determinative, just as determinative. I read studies about how college students across the country spend their leisure time, and let me tell you, it's a cause for concern. <laughs> <laughs> students take the two distinguishing features of what it, makes to be what it means to be human, our rationality and our ability to have meaningful sex, and give them up. Our rationality, we drown in bottles of tequila, and then we proceed to rub up against each other like lower members of our species. <laughs> And then we're surprised to find that this doesn't satisfy our deepest human longings. <laughs> the script used to go that students sowed their wild oats in college and then settled down after college, got married, and started families. Those of you who have taken the God course have been, have been introduced to the sociologist Chris, Tr Christian Smith's work, Remember Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Smith published two follow-up studies to Souls in Transition, a selection from which we read in class. Lost in Transition, published in 2011, identifies five major problems that follow young people after they leave college. The first is confused moral reasoning. The second is routine intoxication. The third, materialistic life goals. Fourth, regrettable sexual experiences. And the fifth, disengagement from civic and political life. Now Smith identifies these five problem areas that inhibited young people in college from fully flourishing, that these continue to hinder them as they mature into their 20s. He notes that patterns set up in college continue with us beyond graduation, especially given that more and more young adults are postponing the stability and grounding values offered by marriage and family life. Now for proof, I turn to Jimmy Fallon. I know that all of us at Villanova are loving Fallon today, okay? <laughs> and that's not the clip I'm gonna use, but I mean, I don't know who on that staff was a Villanova graduate. Does anyone know? I mean, really, pretty great. 
Um, okay, but that's that's not what I'm going to. That's not what I'm going to draw from. That would have been really cool. That's not what I'm going to do. Okay. So I sh I'm sure that uh, many of you have seen this clip. This one is the interview with Nicole Kidman. But what I want to zero in on this evening is the patterns of socializing that fa fa Fallon probably fell into in college. These followed him to Manhattan when he was in his 20s trying to make it as an actor. This pattern inhibited him from cluing in on Kidman's body language. Big mistake. We met before. Oh, I remember. <laughs> Do you remember this? It was really embarrassing for me. Yes. It was? Yeah. Do you want me to I have not seen you since then. I have not. Right? That is correct. No. But this is eight years ago, and I... Do you want me to tell my version of the yeah, story? Yeah, you tell your version. <laughs> I'm walking down the street in New York City. Yeah. My friend Rick calls me and says, Dude, what are you doing? I go, I'm just walking down the street. He goes, uh, I have Nicole Kidman with me. And she wants to meet you for uh, maybe to be in Bewitched or something like that. So I go, what? Uh, okay. She goes, I can be in your apartment in like 10 minutes. I go, you're going to bring Nicole Kidman over to my apartment? I'm like, okay, I don't know. What, what do I do? What do I have something? What do I do? He goes, I don't know. Just get some cheese and crackers or something. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, cheese and crackers? I don't even talk about that. I don't, I don't have dinner party. I don't have anyone over my house. I'm like, I have video games and sneakers. I mean, I really, <laughs> so I go and I go, I, there's a deli and I go in the deli. I go, what do you need cheese? He goes, get brie or something. I go, brie? I don't even know what that is. I'm like, uh. so I go in and this is like, I'm on SRN Live, I guess, or something. I don't remember really when it was. But. I just remember I liked you and he was like, not now. Um, <laughs> I'm married now. Um, but he was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not that way. Wait, wait, what? Wait, what? So he says, <laughs> so Rick, our mutual friend, says, oh, you know, Jimmy wants to meet you and you can go to his apartment and da 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 da. And I'm single and I'm like, okay, yeah. Cool. Wait, what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
this guy is in an apartment in New York with Nicole Kidman, and he's playing video games. <laughs> because his attention was distracted, he missed out on what could have been, I, I mean, from where I stand, a really important opportunity. <laughs> sure, life has worked out for both of them, but wow. Now let's turn back to the college environment. Every year, UCLA runs a big survey on college freshmen across the country. This year's findings show that freshmen are, of course, being increasingly socialized through social media. More than a quarter said that they spent six hours or more on Facebook and Twitter and other sites, up from 19% seven years ago. And they seem to realize that their ability to relate to other people may be suffering, because about half said that their interpersonal skills were either a major strength or somewhat strong way below the 70% of those who said the same about their critical thinking and problem-solving skills. So they are, on average, much more confident about their critical thinking skills than about their interpersonal skills. How we spend our leisure time shapes us, molds us, and changes us. Now even those of you who are avoiding the scene at Flips and Kelly's and other local watering holes, or others who haven't grown addicted to Xbox, Facebook, and Twitter, are shaped by that social script. It might be that there's a failure of the imagination at work during the Villanova leisure time. We might transfer some of the energy spent on thinking about majors and internships and jobs onto thinking about how we spend our spare time. I really don't mean to get preachy or moralistic here. I mean like a little bit, but not very much. <laughs> um, but all the stuff that we learn in the person gateway about being embodied means that what we do with our bodies shapes who we are. So the what am I going to do with my life question shouldn't just cover what happens between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. <coughs> How we spend our leisure time shapes us, molds us, and changes us. So myth number three tells us that we should focus on jobs and work. I'm here to suggest to you that we should focus on how do I spend my leisure time. The last myth, myth number four. This question primarily involves finding our best skill set and then matching that up with a job in which we'll be productive. Now a final strand in our social imaginary that I'm going to talk about this evening involves the obsession around the question, what am I good at? We're raising children in an environment where they need to know whether they're going to be good at lacrosse or soccer or violin by age 10. The Moreland family is bucking this trend. We're letting Sebastian, our fifth grader, our 10-year-old, start baseball. He's never played baseball before, start baseball in the fifth grade. So he has to play with fourth graders. What am I good at? We continually ask ourselves. I think that's exactly the wrong question. If we're honest, we're just not good at much in our early years. We're not supposed to be. I've often wondered whether I should reimburse each member of my first intro theology class at Boston College. <laughs> I was an atrocious teacher and a really bad theologian. So let me show you a five-minute clip by Ira Glass, the American public radio host and producer of This American Life. So he's talking to people who are embarking on creative work, but I think it can be applied to any sort of job. It's our last video of the evening. We'll take a little advertisement break. Uh, tell, tell us people who are beginners. Uh, it really is something that Tony's to me, is that um, 
if you're watching this video, you, somebody wants to make videos, right? And all of us who do creative work, like, you know, we get into it. And we get into it because we have good taste. Do you know what I mean? Like, you want to make TV because you love TV. You know what I mean? Because there's stuff that you just, like, love, okay? So you've got really good taste. And you get into this thing that, that I don't even know how to describe, but it's like there's a gap. That for the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's, it's really not that great. It's, it's trying to be good. It has some vision to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste... The thing that got you into the game, your, your taste is still killer. And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. You know what I mean? Like you can tell that it's still sort of crappy. <laughs> a lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I, I would just like say to you with all my heart is that m most everybody I know who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short, you know, and, they, and, and like and some of us could admit that to ourselves, and some of us are a little less able to admit that to ourselves. But we knew like it didn't have this special thing that we wanted it to have. And the thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, if you're just starting off and you're entering into that phase, you gotta know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you could do is do a lot of work a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story. You know what I mean? Whatever it's going to be. Like you create the deadline. It's best if you have somebody who's waiting for work for you. Somebody who's expecting it from you. Even if it's not somebody who pays you but that you're in a situation where you have to turn out the work. Because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're actually going to ca catch up and close that gap. And your the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. In my case, like I, I, like, I do a national radio show, right? Like, I make my living at this. I've made my living at this for a long time. And, um, and you know, won the Peabody Award, like, won all sorts of prizes. Like, like 1.7 million, million people listen to our show. And, um, and they, listen, they listen almost to the entire show. Like, people love our show, right? Like, the show that I make with my, my coworkers. And, and so, like, so, like, I'm in a place, like, I've, I'm, I'm done, right? I've mastered this thing. But I got to tell you, like, like, I took longer to figure out how to do this than anybody I've ever met. I'm gonna play you a, a clip of tape from, from my eighth year. Like I started in public radio when I was 19 at NPR's network headquarters in Washington. It's a big news organization. Had a really like peachy set of jobs. And like, I was always a good tape cutter, but I was a horrible reporter. I was horrible at the thing that you're setting out to do with these video pods. And um, so, so this is a tape from year eight. It's not such a long way from the local grocery store to the international debate over whether sorghum and meat production are causing corn to decline in Latin America. All right, that debate. We were talking about that at dinner. thanks to Mexican imports of U.S. grains, which helped boost our farm economy. Mexico is now one of our biggest grain customers, buying a half billion to a billion dollars worth every year including corn to feed its people and sorghum to feed its livestock. Like, what am I talking about? I don't know what it is. And like, and, um, and, and, okay, also, like, like every part of this is, is ill-conceived, okay? Um, like, like, the writing is horrible. You can't even follow what I'm talking about. And then the performance, like, okay, just a little tip if you're, you know, performing for broadcast. You don't underline every third word or emphasis because it sounds really unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
This helps cut our own trade deficit and benefits everyone in the U.S. economy. But in Mexico, this policy has led to fewer tortillas for the poor and more tortillas for everyone else. Again, like, this is like the most moronic kind of like, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And it's hard, it's actually kind of an interesting story, which I'll say to you in a sentence, which is, um, because Mexico produces a lot of stuff that they ship to the United States, tomatoes and all sorts of really like wonderful food that we eat here, um, they don't make enough corn for their own people. That's the story. So we, because for us to get really great tomatoes, or semi-great tomatoes, year-round, basically, Mexicans eat worse. That's the story. And it's kind of an interesting idea, right? Like, that's actually sort of like a cool idea, executed in the worst possible way. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I'm 27 years old when this is happening. Like, I'm not a beginner. Like, I'm deep, deep into it. Uh, and, and, and I guess I'm saying, like, it takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while, and you just have to fight your way through that, okay? You will be fierce, you will be a warrior, and you will make things that aren't as good as you know in your heart you, you want them to be, and you'll just make one after another. Like, I think there are... Okay, so the guiding question isn't what am I good at, it's what do I want to become good at? There's an impatience, I think, in this point in click generation about the time, the sweat, the tears it takes to become good at something. So a student will come to me after receiving a paper with a less than satisfactory grade, and I'll ask, did you proofread the paper? And the student will say, well, absolutely, Dr. Moreland. And I'll come to find out that the review process started like less than 10 seconds after the writing process ended. And it's impossible to read a paper the moment you finish writing it. Your mind's still in writing mode. Your mind still thinks you're really smart. <laughs> it's true. You need at least a day to develop critical distance from that paper. So you have to invest time in the writing process. The submission deadline can't be staring you in the face the minute you sit down to write. I remember the first time I was on a panel here at Villanova. I think actually Dr. Smith was on it too. I hope you don't remember it. As I listened to myself give my paper, I thought like, God, Anna, it's going to take you years to get good at this. As Steve Jobs tells us in his commencement address, becoming good at something involves just as many missteps as right steps. The founder of modern <coughs> economics, Adam Smith, agrees with me when he writes, the difference between natural talents and different men is, in reality, much less than we are aware of. And the very different genius, which appears to distinguish men of different professions, when grown up to maturity, is not upon many occasions so much the cause as the effect of the division of labor. Now, Dr. Moreland, it's too late in the evening to throw out a quote that's impossible to penetrate. <laughs> so you're right, so I'm just going to paraphrase. Adam Smith is saying that we, when, you, when you see genuine talent at work in a person, you're seeing the result, not the start. So what looks like natural talent is often instead the fruit of years of hard work and unfailing determination. I often get uncomfortable when people say to me, God has a plan. I think so often we interpret this in a linear way, and this, of course, hooks back directly into myth number one. <coughs> The God has a plan saying makes it seem like living is a kind of continual game, game of hangman. And those of you who had me in class, like, I love hangman. <laughs> but, um, but not when applied to God's providence. Okay. 
Um, so we're trying to, so we just have to try to guess what God's thinking. Like, what should I do with my life? Like, what's God's plan for me? Um, I like to think of God as the perfect dance partner. God graces our missteps such that the, at the end of the day, our dance has rhythm and grace, tempo and form. We have to learn to dance, of course, but a good dance partner leads us through our fumbles and our smooth moves. The good dance partner makes the whole thing look, look graceful. So our fourth and final myth tells us that we should ask the question, what am I good at? And I think we should replace the, this question with what should I become good at or what do I want to become good at. Okay, so in conclusion, in closing, let me remind you that first, life isn't a linear development. Is it, it is instead full of twists and turns. We can only connect the, dot, look, the dots looking backwards. Second, pay as much attention to your imagination as you do to your thoughts. Value your imagination as a guide. Third, when thinking about what you should do with your life, don't just focus on jobs and work. Think about how you spend your leisure time. Fourth, instead of matching your best skill set with a job in which you'll be productive, think about what you want to become good at. Develop a taste for what that looks like and then work long and hard to get there. God does have a plan for each of us. That plan is centered on salvation. How that blossoms in each of us is a very individual thing. That providential plan can take root in us in countless ways. Those of us tonight who have already made our central decisions can all look back at moments in our lives when things could have gone really differently, when we could have taken another road. And then the shape of God's providence in my life would have looked different. Maybe it would have been one of those missteps that God shapes into a graceful dance. But what, have, what would have remained the same is that pull toward eternal rest. So I've tried to suggest this evening that if we, if we cleanse and feed our imagination, if we focus on what brings consolation and desolation, we will be in a much better position to think about what to do with our lives. We, the faculty, introduce you to intellectual and spiritual companions during your time here. Some of you might have been marked by Wendell Berry or Dante, others by Dostoevsky <coughs> or Tolstoy, or yet others by Aristotle or Maimonides. If you're really lucky, of course, you've been marked by Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> we introduce you and guide, through a, guide you through a broad and rich conversation. And we remain here for you after you graduate. We're available by me email and all sorts of social media. We'll be waiting to hear from you. Thank you. Two quick announcements. The one is the desserts, and then, well, after questions, and the other is since I dissed <coughs> Flips and Kelly's, we're going to Galifti's after the reception because I can't, in good conscience, lead you all to either of those other two. Okay. Uh, anybody have any questions, comments, reflections, anything? Dr. Quigley. Cultivating indifference. Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I taught Virginia Woolf at Room of One's Own today, and she gets a lot of grief for feigning not to care. 
um, for cultivating, it, it was indifference, right? right? For trying to think about ways to be sort of less passionate while you make decisions. And, and, and particularly feminists, but a lot of people think, no, tap into your passions and why are you cultivating indifference? Why don't you admit what you care about? Right. So can you, can you explain that just a little bit? Because it seems like sure. a good idea. Sure. So for Ignatius, cultivating indifference absolutely doesn't mean I've got this illusion of objectivity and I'm not I'm not passionate. I mean if he I mean he's like a Basque, you know, he's just that, that that's not his problem, right? Um, cultivating indifference has to do with a disciplining of our attachments to disordered goods. So um, perhaps it might involve disciplining ourselves away from Diet Coke every day, right? I mean it might involve disciplining ourselves away from um, obsessing. I think the obsessing about starting calories is a good one because you grow attached to um, to certain ways of thinking about possibilities like a possibility of a job in another city. You might in theory grow attached to Realtor.com <coughs> and that might not be the best way in to think about whether you should move to that city. You see what I mean? So you have to cultivate indifference from that disordered attachment. It's not a sort of general indifference at all. It's a it's a practice of discipline along the way. Is that others? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about um, myth, like the interplay between myth number three and myth number four? Because um, sometimes when I like we're just thinking of, thinking about becoming good at something, I mean there's a uh, certain element inherent difficulty even in that last uh, video that we watched. Kind of kind of like perseverance and sometimes leisure can kind of be thought to be antithetical to becoming good at something. Um, can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. That's a really good question. Um, so certain kinds of leisure it's sort of a, it's, a, it's sort of an, there's an analog to to Dr. Quigley's question. Uh, certain kind of, kinds of leisure might be antithetical to vocational discernment. Certain kinds of leisure that are Doritos for the brain <laughs> are not going to help you answer myth number four. <coughs> it, it are not going to help you, help you answer the question, what am I good at? Right? So it's not don't, it's, it's think about how your leisure is feeding you all around. Think about whether your leisure is really filling you such that you can then turn to work. Think about whether pulling an all-nighter is such a great idea. Or, um, well, <laughs> I'm just going to stay silent. But um, <laughs> I can imagine that you might have you know, follow-up thoughts to that. You, I mean, not you in particular, I mean in general. <laughs> I told you it was dicey. <laughs> You see what I mean? It's, yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's, I guess in some some ways that I understand that you kind of say leisure can facilitate becoming good at something. Right, like you need to rest. I mean, what the whole story of the Sabbath is? We need to rest in order for the rest of the work, to, the the rest of the week to make sense. If we don't rest, we burn out, and we get all we get stress and anxiety. All those things that you read studies about that um, are very real and true, um, partly come as a lack of, of of a healthy rest. 
a rest that doesn't actually drain you as well. I think um, I'm going to get preachy. Forget it. I'm not going to say what I'm going to say. I mean, I just think screen time is draining. So it's not rest. You see what I mean? In the way that reading a book is not draining. It fills. Preachy. Sarah. I guess sort of uh, thinking ahead to um, what would you say, should, or would you say that in terms of what do I want to be good at in work, could you also ask not only kind of where do I want to work, what kind of work do I want to be doing, but also what does leisure look like? like Definitely. <coughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, that's why Christian Smith's 2011 book is so depressing. Um, because that <coughs> question is just as important. If we don't, again, how does Anna not get preachy? I just talked about myself in the third person. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, hold on. I'm so asking for your advice, so you can go. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but there are all these other people. Um, <laughs> Um, right, so, so you know how uh, it, it's kind of fun in your young 20s to go out to bars and everything, and then you start to see older people there and it looks creepy. Um, so it get, that sort of option for socializing looks pre creepy pretty quickly. And so you've got to come up with other options to socialize, it seems to me, because it's going to look creepy. <laughs> Yeah, Vivian. Uh, so how would you consolidate the leisure with today's society and how we're all, like today is all very, we have career-centered, like we have a center specifically for funneling you into a career as fast as possible, getting you a job. And so how would you consolidate what you just said about leisure and resting and putting passion into something with the high stress and high pressure environment of college that we're right. in right now? Good. Good. So. I do really think, and I find myself, this is not just true about college, but it's true about later in life, that um, if you do leisure well, you're going to do your stressful work well. If you don't do leisure well, you're going to do your stressful work less well. So that the, the question about leisure really, if you focus on leisure, the career center is going to be happy, you <laughs> see, because you're going to end up um, Okay, so I'm gonna say you're gonna end up being more productive even if it like it makes me want to vomit. Like I that's not my that's not what I you know, that's not my intention to like make I think we're pretty productive enough. Um, so I would wanna kinda challenge against that race for to productivity, which ends up I think not being that productive. Working ten, twelve, fourteen hours a day, you're not working the whole time. You're just not. You know, do one of those, you, you could try to pretend you're a lawyer and bill your time in 15 minute increments and see what you're doing in 15 minute increments. You know, sort of like um, that calorie counter or no, the, the thing, MyFitnessPal, where you have to write in everything you eat. So, 15 minute increments. And then, you, and then you see, like, oh my God, I just ate six bags of Doritos this week, right? <laughs> the same thing happens with um, how much, where you spend your leisure time. You, you kind of see it written down and you think, it might give you pause. I'm not saying, again, Vivian in particular, I'm just saying it might give one pause. You see what I mean? Good. Julia. So 
Good. This is a place where we've been able to talk about these things. Right. And people actually care and listen and understand. And then we're going to go out there to a world that's looking at productivity, that's looking at nature as we think, that's looking at all of that in a different way. Good. So the first thing I want to tell you is that that's a live question for the faculty in the Department of Humanities as well. We get that, we understand it, and we're looking at ways to address that. We're looking at ways to um, cultivate an alumni community that um, helps helps you in that as you sort of go out onto the world, right? Um, but I, I got to say, I'm going to also say that if you think back to Anna, <laughs> if you think back to me in graduate school, I had that same, like, how, how, I mean, how am I going to live, how am I going to live a happy life moving away from Boston? I had that exact feeling. It's just all going to go down here, downhill from here. And, and you know, it doesn't. And you find other circles of conversation partners. And uh, you create other kind of small communities wherever you go, because there are other people like you out there. Um, I think it's a temptation to think that this is the only way it can be done, and this is, this is kind of where it's all happening, and you leave the sort of shell or the coziness of Villanova or the intellectual inquiry of the humanities department, and like we're in a wasteland. And I, I haven't found that. I haven't found that at all. And I don't think you'll find that either. Brian. Uh, being a former student of Dr. McCarriher, I hear a lot about happiness in consumer society. And that's one word I didn't hear, I don't think anyway, in this lecture. So where does happiness as a construct, how does that play into this? I thought about using the word joy. How does happiness get so misused, I guess, that, um, that I stayed away from it. Um, I'm not trying to make you unhappy. No, I'm no, just saying um, <laughs> that. That's the point I want you to expand on is how it gets misused. Right. So, um, well, clearly, like, we had to, in order to get to the Ira Glass interview, we had to go through a commercial, right? I mean, we have we are shaped constantly about, um, sort of we, we constantly have images telling us what's going to make us happy, right? Yeah. I mean, Amazon Prime, it's a drug, right? <laughs> um, we think it's going to make us happy, like it, and it kind of does. <laughs> but it's not really, it doesn't truly like drive down deep, you know? Yes. Could Dr. McCarriher hear Anna talk uh, <laughs> about, uh, you mentioned civic and political engagement. And yes. the reason I'm asking this is that it seems to me that a lot of the questions, especially say work and leisure, are political issues. They're, they're not just work and sure. moral and spiritual. Because uh, you know you talk about people working 10, 12 hours a day. Most That's right. don't work because they want to. Sure. They're told to. Right. Um, and, it, and it seems to me that they, the only way that's going to change is not because you change, we change. That's right. Like amen brother is all I can say, right? I mean, no, really. <laughs> no, really, I mean, that would be a whole other dimension to develop out of this, 
that's um, that's absolutely right, but I think it's fundamentally in concert with the messages this evening, right? But that's absolutely in the end a needed aspect to develop. Good. Yes. Um, you very momentarily brought it up, but where does community fit in to what do I want to do with my life? Because in my experience, it's almost always been more about the people that I'm connecting with and the mm -hmm. people that I'm spending time with rather than the content of what I'm doing that really brings about the fulfillment <coughs> for me. And I know that for other people that I've talked to, that's been the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you think community fits in? Good. So, um, so I think it was in myth number two. Isn't the dispelled thing kind of cool? Dispelled. Like as if I did that tonight. Okay. Um, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm distracted. All right. So um, when I talked about Ignatius and spiritual companions, that piece, uh, you can't do discernment alone. You have to do discernment in community with people wiser and more knowledgeable than myself, right? Uh, people or than wh whoever is trying to do the discernment. Um, so that's absolutely true. I guess to your point about it's more about who I'm hanging out with in work or than about what <coughs> I'm actually doing. Um, I don't know. That that's like a bifurcation that I um, I want to challenge because what you're doing I'm not saying this in your individual case again mm -hmm. but what you're doing could be pretty demeaning to yourselves or you know what I mean it could so what what you the kind of work that you're doing together is important as you're hanging out together and having a good time right so mm -hmm. um, so I think they'd have to be organically related. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree as well. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Sort of addition to that, though. Um, I mean, I know people, you know, lawyers who have changed from one firm to another to make less money and work less uh, because they like that firm. Right. It's the same kind of work, but it's a happier life because Right, or, I mean, I guess I would say it, it might be a less unhappy life, too. I don't know. But, I, I, yes. I mean, I certainly would agree. Thank you. Yeah. So if we have to listen to the, the certain voices and have images that may go against what we know or what, you know, modern society tells us, how would you answer the conversation someone may say you're your ideal or you come off maybe arrogant coming coming from such a different perspective or too lofty um, how would you how would you have that conversation well, I guess I, I I mean other than the arrogant which one generally doesn't want to be but I mean the ideal and the lofty like it seems to me that a it's age-appropriate and B it's a value right it's a virtue um, so I guess I would just ask my conversation partner, what's, what's the alternative? Like, what would you rather me be? Like, critical and snarky? <laughs> <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah, Charlie. So you mentioned for, for us seniors, um, the first step after graduation is one of many steps. Um, and it seems to me that a lot of these questions broadly would apply to more of the kind of future steps. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of us who are deciding whether to apply for jobs or go to grad school or do your service, 
how does this affect our first step decision? Good. So it seems to me that you would want to zero in on the Ignatius piece, on the what brings you consolation and desolation, on cultivating indifference, and on turning to your spiritual companions, or intellectual companions, or your true friends, basically, <coughs> another way of putting that, right? Uh, and so asking that question in a real community, um, examining your desires, because some of our desires are disordered, and so examining why you want to do X, Y, or Z, what is, what's really at root of that desire. Um, and then really what brings you joy? And that is not easy. Cultivating the habit of discernment, it do, it's, it's, it's going, I hate to say this, but it's just going to be a lifelong thing. So you might not be able to do all that for like the next step, right? You just have to land somewhere next year. It's kind of what we're hoping for. <laughs> and then it, wor it does end up working out. It really does. So I would also just want to, my, my main point of, uh, of the next year piece, of the first step piece to all of you seniors, is just like take a chill pill. It's just next year. Like if you just have to decide next year, you don't have to decide the rest of your life. That is the resounding message I would want to give seniors. So that's a really good question. Like my oldest, Juan Pablo, he thinks he's going to be a professional football player. Like he just, he just so God did not give him that build. You know, like that's just not going to work. Um, but I'm not going to tell him that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, um, so we do have certain kind of, certain limitations that we need to come to grips with, right? Um, But we can become good at a lot. Like if I look at my stage down the pike, if I look at who of my friends in college or graduate school ended up actually becoming good at something, they're not all the people that I would have anticipated. Do you see what I mean? They're not the people that looked like they had natural abilities. They really, really, really aren't somewhat disappointing to me, right? Like, I just didn't see it. Um, so, so I would say, unless you're told repeatedly by people you trust, like Simran, you should quit your day job, like keep working that day job until you get better at that day job, if it brings you joy, if it's really what you love. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Anybody else? Yes, uh, Dr. Cohen. Hello. Really I'm something I've been puzzling about actually kind of for a long time. I wrote a 
heard both of you, uh, Emily, Emily Towns, some of Emily Towns' work, um, in which she argues that uh, people ought to be pursuing meaningful work, right, important work. Um, and this, I think, is something we often are told. And on the one hand, I, I don't want to say that's wrong. On the other hand, I think about a lot of people um, that I know who just work to live, just work to support a family, trying to kind of get along. So I think this is along the lines of your myth, num myth number three. And I guess I want to ask, is it always appropriate to pursue a, a job because you think it's meaningful uh, or joyous? I mean, sometimes I think we put so much weight uh, mm -hmm. in the job having to be meaningful. I think, well, an awful lot of people just punch in and punch out. I'm not, I don't know if we want to always ask everybody to ask more of Yes, sure. So, I mean, it's somehow that's linked to Dr. McCarraher's point in a pretty obvious way. Um, but I guess I would say uh, I'm speaking to an extremely elite crowd tonight, and uh, that's my audience. You know what I mean? So, if that's my audience, the problem you're talking about <coughs> is a problem mostly of other people. Or it seems to me the temptation of my audience tonight um, I would want to caution them against just doing a job to do the job for the salary. Salary looks good month to month. I mean well, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Some of the jobs are really fun when you want Oh, right. Right. So I, I right, of or course. Of course. Um, so right, okay, okay. So that's absolutely right. And so then scratch the elite comment. But no, I mean, I think they're both right. Um, of course, that's absolutely right. And so jobs can be meaningful in ways that we don't expect, right? Um, no doubt about it. And jobs that wouldn't self-identify as meaningful jobs can, of course, absolutely. Thank you for that. <coughs> Else? Yes? Yeah. Just to I mean, amplify that other point, it seems to me that sort of if you, if you thought about dispelling myth three in this way, that, that in a sense you've got more than, you could think of that as sort of a balance of leisure and work, but really if you take the whole point it's about the shape of a whole life. Right. So discerning a future and a vocation is about the shape of a whole life, which allows for multiple variations in terms of where work fits in terms of your meaning. Right? right. Work might be meaningful because it supplies the income so that I can care for my family and that's where my, you know. So you can have sort of complex variables in various combinations, but the shape of the life is where the discernment comes in. Is that mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. That's helpful. Well, I knew when I was a bad teacher. Like, I remember, <laughs> I mean, like, that's pretty clear. Like, I remember being observed. Oh, God, Tom. Um, okay. Um, Tom Smith had, Dr. Smith had to come back to my class um, a second time because the first time was such a disaster, my first year here. Um, but, so. It was so good I had to see it again. 
Um, so honestly, I think Ira Glass is really right. Like, you can really sense when you're not getting it. You know, when whatever happens in baseball, right? I mean, I imagine <coughs> that you can sense when you sense when the bat hits it just right, but when you're hitting it off, you want that. To, I'm totally making this up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know, you get the getting it wrong over and over. You want to get it right, and then you know, you also have models of really good. Teachers. I had models, concrete models of really good teachers who I wanted to become like. And actually, I um, I tried to. So like I tried to teach like one of my teachers, complete disaster. So you you know you just you try these different things because uh, I'm just not that guy. I, I just can't do it. Right. Um, you try these different things to see if they work, and then you realize oh no that they don't work. But then, you know, maybe hitting students with books sometimes works, right? <laughs> Clearly, it's memorable. So, God, Bernard isn't here, is he? No. Anybody else? <laughs> Last? Okay. Thank you.